Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for or celebrated. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who approaches him must believe that he exists. And that makes sense, doesn't it? That faith cannot take root unless there is an, an absolute, unequivocal understanding that he exists and he's not far away, but he is involved in our lives. He's, he, he's, he has a personal uh, a relationship with us in the sending of Jesus Christ, of course. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. And so believing in him is, is the beginning of all, of all of that. And then it's just impossible to please him because anyone who approaches him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And that's a wonderful promise. The writer is saying, look, and once again, that those who earnestly seek him, those who are thinking about him, those who put their hope, their trust, and their faith in him, there's going to be a reward in this life. Of course, we know that there's a reward coming, heaven. But what about now? And so the writer then goes into a whole list, a litany of all the wonderful testimonies. And so this is kind of the climax. This is the point when the writer who is speaking to his Hebrew audience to say, look, let me show you how all this faith pointed toward the work of Christ. And so if you look at the rest of chapter 11, which I'm not going to go into detail because, or, or to read it all, but I will just skip over the top of this. He talks about creation, how creation began as a result of faith and believing that God spoke what wasn't into existence. And then he talked about Abel offering a sacrifice in faith, and it was a perfect, as a result, that was the difference between Abel's sacrifice and, and, and Cain's sacrifice. Abel believed in God. He had faith to believe that his, his offering was good. It was to his, his heavenly God, whereas Cain, it was just going through the motions, and it wasn't accepted as a result because it's impossible to please God without faith. Abel pleased him. Cain did not. And then he talks about Noah, of course. Noah uh, was commended because when God told him to build the ark, he did it. He obeyed. He understood that God was the creator. He assumed that, and he did what he was asked to do, and he was commended for that, celebrated that. Enoch was so close to God that God took him. He didn't experience death in this life. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Began the understanding that all of that land would be belong to him. God promised, and he believed. Then there's Sarah, that she would have a child in her own old age. She believed. Isaac, the son, the son of promise, uh, believed that through him, the, the, Abraham's, the Abrahamic promise would flow through him. And of course, he had his sons uh, Esau and, and Jacob. And Jacob, of course, is the one who goes on. And he believed God and raised up a, a mighty family, 12 children, 12 young men who would go on to be the tribes. Then Joseph, who was locked up and, and sent into slavery. You know, he just goes on and on and on to show them that their history, the promise of God's favor was, was, went from generation to generation. And, uh, and then, of course, Moses, bringing forth the, the wonderful covenant. Talked about him quite a bit. And he goes on, and he says, And what more shall I say? Time will not allow me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, and escaped the edge of the sword, who gained strength from weakness and became mighty in battle, 
and put foreign armies to flight. He went to list all of the wonderful uh, 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 champions of faith. He said, they are your heritage. They are the ones who've gone before you. They believed God and they received what was promised. And he's saying this to show them that there is a great cloud. We'll get to that in a second. But there is a huge group of witnesses that are cheering us on from heaven. They say, you can do it. You can believe. He says, these were all commended for one thing, their faith. None of what they experienced, none of all the miracles, none of all those wonderful, amazing things that we read in Bible, in the Bible that some believe that are only mythological, but we know they were true because why? We have faith. We know they happened because we have a mighty God. And that's what this writer is saying. He says, none of what you've experienced from your past, none of all that miraculous promise that is now beginning to, 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 to burst forth into your life can be had without belief. We have to believe him. But believe what? Well, we push forward. And so they were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, not fully, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is a pretty amazing statement here if you just take a moment to think about it. What he's saying is all of these wonderful people that, that, that we read about experienced incredible things, and yet they didn't, they, they didn't receive all that was promised? What on earth were they waiting for? Jesus. What they were waiting for was the culmination of God's, God's great plan that God would dwell among us, that God would inhabit us, that God, that on the tip of our tongue would be able for us to be able to speak in the name of Jesus, to do amazing exploits. Folks, well, if we would really get a hold of what exactly the Bible speaks of, that it's now ours, it, it absolutely blows my mind. And, and here the writer is saying, look, don't forfeit all that. And where it does get forfeited is when we begin to doubt. Where it does get for forfeited is when we forget. I dare say, and I'm going to make a very bold statement here, but I dare say that many, many Christians do not know who they are. Many Christians do not know what they have in their very, very heart living inside them. What's accessible to them through their prayers. You know, Jesus, when he preached, when he taught it was almost, he, he, he would speak to them almost incredulously to those disciples to say, you guys would only have a mustard seed of faith. You could do what I am doing. And they did, of course. Folks, what have we lost as a church? And how can we get it back? Well, he goes on. He said, they were not able to fully receive because there was a mentality that we're going to talk about here in just a minute. There was a mentality that we all need to have. And that is that it ain't over until it's over. That you might be sitting in this room today and you might be finding yourself swimming in a pool of uncertainty. But I'm going to get to that in just a second of how we can break out. See, faith is looking forward to dwelling with God. And that's what the writer was talking about. He said, they did all these amazing things, but what they did not get is what we enjoy today. And that is the fulfillment of God's wonderful promise. He already said, God made provision for sin, and he sat down. Folks, if we would just realize who we are, what's been achieved, 
what we have gained that the ancients yearned for but never, never, ever really received. The intimacy, the closeness, to be able to speak and be there. The prophetic unction of the prophets, ours. The power and the miraculous signs and wonders, ours. To be able to speak in Jesus' name, to be able to believe for the most amazing, wondrous things, ours. But ultimately, he was talking, they were talking about dwelling. And that's where this all comes from. It comes from faith. But not just faith for a vending machine God, but a faith to know that he indwells me. And then out of that bursts purpose. Every one of us are kingdom plants. Every one of us can, can dwell with God. What they wish they had, we have. That intimacy, that closeness, that ability to call upon God and call in his miraculous signs and wonders at any given time. It's ours. Folks, the Christian walk is a pilgrimage, there's no doubt. And what I mean by it, if you think of what a pilgrimage is, it's a journey. And we're all on this journey and we're walking and, and we're, we're moving forward. And, that, and for, don't forget that. We're moving forward toward a culmination of kingdom outpouring through our lives. It's so easy. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard of that book, that, that, that book written back uh, in the colonial uh, era uh, called Pilgrim's Progress. And the writer hit on something that was very uh, critical in talking about how we are all on this pilgrimage. We're all on this journey. And every single day we're learning, we're growing, we're embracing what it is that God has called us to do. So that every single day there's an opportunity to advance his kingdom. But it's how we face that that is absolutely key. See, when it fails to become, in other words, when we fail to see the pilgrimage or whether it, it never quite develops, that maybe we give our life to Jesus Christ and we just assume we've got our fire insurance, we're going to heaven, and then we're just going to live however we want to live in this life, then we never actually set out on that journey. Or maybe you set out on that journey when you were younger or some point in your life and, and just like uh, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, he, he fell into the slough of despair or he, he got distracted by the, the voices that would call him over to the other side of the bank. That whatever it is, distraction or, 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 or struggle, whatever it might be, that we get off the pilgrimage. And as a result, we, we, we very quickly forget who we are and what we're called to be and to do. So folks, I want to talk about our motivation for life tonight. What is our motivation for life? This is what the writer is saying. He's saying, look, look, if you're going to move forward in your faith, if you're going to break out of this wavering lifestyle, if you're going to break out of this double-mindedness that you are struggling with, then you must get it straight what it is that is motivating you. What is the dynamo that is driving? And I see three different ones that have already been discussed throughout this series, but I'm going to hit them again tonight, is either fear, force, or faith. And you need to search your heart tonight as the Spirit of God is here among us to search our heart. Because I don't want to waste your time. 
And if the Holy Spirit is, and if you're looking to him, if you're, if you're wanting to draw close to the Lord, if you want to experience the kind of miraculous signs and wonders that affect your relationships, with, you know, that, that you live in when it comes to your, your, your finances, you live in when it comes to your marriage, that you experience every single day in the wellness of your heart and mind, the impact of, of experiencing that rich re- reward that we've talked about day after day, then it's going to come through only one of these. But let me look at them. Number one is fear. See, fear is the opposite of faith. And, you know, it's one of those, it, it is the language of the enemy. And yet so many of us are not even fully attuned to it. So what does faith, what does fear do? Fear attracts the enemy himself because that's his language. It attracts the enemy. It brings lies. It brings confusion. It ultimately brings destruction in our life, the fear of the unknown. When we live our lives in fear, then my my friends, we're stuck in the foxhole in the middle of a mighty battle, never moving forward. We're stuck. Because we're afraid of what might happen, we're afraid to make a decision and how that, what its impact might be. But see, when we talk about following God, when we talk about obeying God, when we talk about listening to God, of course we start with, I have to believe it exists. Somebody I can't see. And then I have to go on to believe that my life is tied up in, in, in a part of this great God who I can't see. And so each one of these steps are moving forward and preparing me for so much better. But, but fear, man, we just locked down. And we can live our lives out of fear, and of course, it leaves a void, which, of course, the devil is very glad to fill, very glad to fill, to fill up our lives with activities and destructions and distractions. Oh, he'll do it. When a person's led by fear or motivated by fear, they kind of have this fatalistic approach to life. In other words, just kind of like whatever happens, you know, what comes around goes around. Or they talk about karma. Or they talk about different things that it's just like, well, I'm getting what I deserve. Or, or, or in, in, in never ever connecting to their life to the, the, the point that God wants to bless us. That God wants us to be more than just a, a ble- experienced blessing, but that we are a blessing. To go way beyond just survival but to be the point of contact where everyone will be blessed around us. That's the goal. See, fear will never let us get there. Never. And as a result, even our language is filled with curses. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor David? Well, self-defeating language. Yeah, well, this always happens. This time this year is always going on. Well, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, we call it upon ourselves. Our expectation is to continue to struggle. Our expectation is to continue to, to, to experience what is damaging, what is wrong, is what is evil. And you know what? It, our, our nation is, is, is full of it. And some of us, we allow those people to convince us to think that way. And so we will continue like a dog chasing his own tail, just round and round and round, never moving, never going, just chasing. It's what fear will do. Ultimately, we blame everyone else for our difficulties and our problems. That's where fear will lead us. Because 
That's an amazing thing about fear is the devil never gets the actual credit for it because he appears as an angel of light. Light. He does such a great job, and I'm not praising him, but he does such a great job at convincing people that it's somebody else's fault or my own fault that he never gets targeted. That's how good he is. And that's what fear will do. And we never get anywhere near faith if that's how we're living our life, if that's what the motivating energy. And like this group, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, Nothing is going to happen in your life for good in the kingdom without faith. And he just read, read through all of these people that they all looked up to, that they all knew were important icons in their life. And every one of, ex, of them experienced what they experienced as a result of faith. Number two, talk about fear. Is, next is force. Force attracts pride. And what I mean by force is kind of picking up where I left off last week. And that is self-effort. That when we don't feel like it's going our way, then we try to take matters into our own hands. You, you remember me talking about that. Well, I want to take that a little bit farther, that we can get into this, 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 this kind of lifestyle where we're just pushing everything. We're going, to, we're going to work harder. We're going to be greater. We're going to gain more money. We're going to make the world pay by doing things in our own strength. Oh my gosh, I mean, there are songs about it. There are movies about it. It, it is a mantra of, of, of our nation. But force attracts pride. And once again, God resists the proud. Faith attracts the enemy. Pride, God pulls away. Pride will never do anything good for you. Nothing good. It is the opposite of humility. And God who is ready to be asked, withdraws from it. So if we're feeding pride, we're feeding self-effort, we're building ourselves up in our own minds. Paul said, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to. When, see, here's the deal. When you understand the gravity of your sin, when you understand the, the impact of what Jesus did on the cross for you, when you understand how much you've been set free from, there is absolutely no other attitude than humility than understanding I am nothing without him. Absolutely nothing. But yet when we get a hold of pride and try to make something of ourselves and speak of ourselves, and we're all, our, we are our, our own best PR person promoting ourselves, once again, a very worldly wise principle. But force that attracts pride produces a passionless duty in the end all done by me, yeah, for others, but in the end, for my glory. There's intellectual titillation, but no real life. In other words, a person who lives their life by force, force I'm sorry, is, is going to have an awareness of that which is great. They're going to speak about it, but it's all going to be selfish. And that's exactly why it can be so tempting to follow and which is why it attracts so many young people, and why it attracts so many people who desire to have position without character. Self-promoting, pushing themselves up to the front to do something good, but in the end, it's kind of yucky because there's only one person who's really getting all the glory for it, 
And, and let me tell you, if you're on that path, you want to get off it right now. Get off of it right now. Because you can't hold the glory of God. No, it will destroy you. And again, the force attracts pride. I will fight for every drop of life to the point where there is kind of that just fighting against the world, you know, fighting against everything. And then finally, faith. That's the real motivator. That's the one we're shooting for. That's where we got to get. We got to get to the point where everything from our life, our thought process, processes, our passions, has to flow from faith in God, to believe in the one we can't see, to believe in the one who has a personal plan for my life, who has a good, perfect, and pleasing will to, be, to come through my life, through every aspect of my life, through my gifting, through my talents, through my, my time in history, through my, you know, it doesn't matter, through my race, through whatever circumstances in my life. I am I am the one he's going to flow through. And we, we, we should never doubt that. We should never judge that. We should never be angry about it. We should embrace it and let God, and when we put our hope and faith in God, I mean, look at the Old Testament and look at all these ones that were mentioned here. I mean, Gideon, man, what a dork. I mean, this guy was a wimp hiding in a hole when the angel found him. And he greeted him and said, greetings, mighty man of God. And he's looking around like, who are you talking to? talking to you. And I joke about the fact that even the angel looked at him and said, I'm sure he looked up to God, the father, and said, are you sure I got the right guy here? He's a real wimp. So true. God will take the broken ones of us. God will take the ones who could never see God ever doing anything through us to do amazing things because we put our faith in God. So faith attracts what? God himself. God himself. Why, why, do I, why do I say that? It says that you can, no one can please God without faith. And when we have faith, this is what they were commended for. I love that word commended. Look it up in the dictionary. You know what it really means is what they were celebrated for. I mean, commended, I think in terms of, I mean, really, the word is much deeper, much more celebratory than just commended. Commended is just slapping in your back. Hey, good job. That's not really the feeling here in the Greek. It's more of what is celebrated. And when we believe God, we attract him. And nothing is greater than having God around. <laughs> nothing. You know, the Bible gets right to that in calling it, Paul calls it, and all the writers call it, grace. And if we were to define really God's pleasure, it's grace. Because God is attracted. He was repelled by pride, but he's attracted to humility. And what does he do? The moment he arrives on the scene, he pours out grace. And if you've got brokenness and sin, he pours out even more grace. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling to think about that, but it is absolutely true. The only qualification for any human being, whether in this room or the rest of the world, to experience the unbelievable, wondrous power of God is one qualification and one only, humility. And of course, faith. Not just humility, and, and I'm not talking about navel-gazing, you know, uh, beating up on oneself. No, I'm talking about 
humility in the God kind of humility. You understand that I am nothing without him. I do nothing without his grace. Is there anything good about my life? Is there anything you enjoy about my life? Well, give credit to God because he's the one who did it. He plucked me up out of the fire and he gave me a purpose. And there's nothing good that comes from my life without him. God is attracted to that. And God will pour out more grace. See, isn't that interesting? That when we fear, you can expect nothing. And when we try to force, you can see God actually run from us. But when we have faith, even in our brokenness, God runs to our aid. And God is ready to pour out everything we need to live this life, to succeed in this life, to succeed in our marriage, to succeed with our finances, to succeed in raising our children, to succeed in our jobs, to succeed in this world, in every aspect of it. God is pleased with those who trust him and put their hope in him for every aspect, every aspect. So God gives us purpose. We discover that when we put our faith in him. And that's interesting, too. As I think God, I'm not saying he's playing a trick on us, but he woos us. So in other words, he doesn't show us everything. He just say, and, and that's why they were commended, because they believed in God when they could see nothing. Nothing. Abraham, he said, you see all this land? It's all going to be yours, and you're going to be the father of many nations. Abraham died not seeing a, a single one of them. Not a one. But he believed God it was going to happen. God gives us promises and impossible tasks. He gives us opportunities to bear lasting fruit that produced in faith will last forever. So the key is, you can't have faith in what you do not know. If the word and the language of faith is foreign to you, then may I suggest that you search your heart as to the intimacy that you have with God. Because the closer you get to him, I mean, it's presupposed. Somebody walks up to me and they start talking about an intimate relationship with Jesus, and I immediately go, man, you've got, you've got some faith, bro. Because you have to get down on your knees. You have to drive in your car. You have to go for walks at night talking to somebody you cannot see. And yet you, you believe with all your heart that he's right there. And he's listening to every word. And that every time you open your mouth and ask him to intervene in some area of your life, whether it be for your family, your mother, your dad, or your children, or, or, or whatever it is, or just to pour out your heart. And then when you're done, you're like, I feel good. He heard me. And because I know he heard me, I know he's taking my request to task. Folks, that all requires faith. It is faith. You want to you you develop faith? I mean, it's not just a rhetorical question. I mean, think of it. Do you want to grow in faith? Let me tell you how to do it. Talk to Jesus. Talk to him. Pray. Converse. Open your heart. Let him speak to you through the word of God. Begin to develop that daily meeting, daily at his doors. Why was David where he was? How, why did any of these men and women experience what they experienced? They believed that he existed, and they believed he was a part of their life every single time. 
So the writer, well, you can't have faith in what you do not know. That is why the ancients are commended, because they believed in the one they couldn't see and even barely knew. How much more can we have faith in Christ? How much more will we be rewarded? How much more can we expect? And they, they experience great signs and wonders. How much more will we when we just simply believe in Jesus? So the writer, he moves forward and he says, look, you got to keep moving forward. You got to keep reaching for God's work through you. The test, the test is this. We should all leave with certain calls, promises, plans, and visions unfulfilled. And it's to go beyond. I mean, I, I, so faith is where we got to go, but this is where it's going to take us. And I love the writer is saying, how much should we believe God for? How far will this, 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 this faith take us? What should my life look like? I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care how old you are. And I, and I don't suppose this would be a, a very wonderful retirement message as I'm thinking about that myself. Let me read that statement again. We should all leave this world with certain calls, promises, plans, and visions unfulfilled. I was sharing with Jamie. This is the way I, I, I'm seeing this. Is that when, when my time comes or it's drawing close, close, that I'll be like, darn, I really wanted to do that. I still wanted to get to that. I wanted to build that. I wanted to share that. I wanted to travel and do this. I wanted, there was so much more we wanted to do. You know, I looked into the eyes of a man who did that very thing. He was only 42 years old. He had cancer. He was dying. The doctors gave him no hope. And I went and I talked to him and I said, brother, he's a dear, dear, dear friend of mine and Andrea's too. And I remember it, it, it just, it, it burned into my psyche because I still see him telling me this. As tears rolled down his eyes, he said, David, there's so much more I wanted to do. I had books. I had more songs to write. He was a worship leader, well-known, international. So much more I wanted to do. And that impacted me. And as I've read this, you know, I, that's how we're supposed to live. When we check out of here, it needs to be like Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Hey, heaven's always going to be there. Heaven's waiting. But you can never get this time again. You can never get it. When it's done, it's done. He wraps it up with this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Because that's often what it is. I mean, it may not be overt sin. It may not be, you know, uh, you know the kind of sin that, that, that can embarrass us or whatever, but it could just be unbelief. It could be doubt. It could be distraction. It could be laziness. He's saying, throw that off, man. If you want to get to doing, if you want to live with a motivation of real faith, throw off the things that you know are hindering you. And let us run with perseverance, the race that's marked out for us. Did you know you got a race marked out for you? You got lines. And you wake up every day, reset. They're in the track. On your mark, get set, go. Live with intentionality. 
Live with expectation. Live in faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our bare faith. So can you see it? We wake up in the morning, we get down in the track, and we look ahead, Jesus. And he's over there going, come on, let's go. Let's do this thing. Yeah, but I'm running a lot slower than I used to, Lord. Doesn't matter. Get her done. Come on, run. Run as hard as you can. Fix your eye on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's saying, he's saying, look, he came to earth, and in three years, he gave it all. He left it on the table. He left it on the field. He died for you and me. How can we do less? Not that what he's calling us to die, but what I'm saying is the motivation to leave it here on the field. Or the joy set before him. That's what's set before us. Joy through obedience, as we talked about last week. Scorn to shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Don't, don't lose heart. Run. Leave it on the field. I want to finish with a story one that God gave me today. A long time ago, there was an old man who was a cobbler. He loved making shoes for everyone in the village. Everyone loved his shoes because he took great care in making sure that they fit perfectly. It was the same every time. A farmer, a housewife, or a small child would come in and and he would smile, a gentle smile, and ask them to sit on an old wooden three-legged stool. He looked at their feet, and he would rub his chin, and his brushy eyebrows were shifting like large woolly worms on his brow. He would ask them to stand and walk from wall to wall in his small leather-scented shop. He would stand and gently measure both feet with his gnarled hands, carefully writing his little notes on a scrap of leather. Within a week or so, the villagers were presented with a perfect-fitting work of art on their feet. No one ever asked about the kind of shoe they wanted. They anticipated the master's creation and were never, ever disappointed. You would never, never think of it, but this made for the happiest village in the whole country. One day, a little homeless boy, a pauper, walked in and asked if he could just watch the gentle cobbler make his shoes. The cobbler only smiled and gestured for him to take a seat on a small bench next to his tool-equipped oak table. The boy watched him intently for days on end, making shoes of all kinds. The little boy yearned to fiddle with the tools and begin making the shoes himself. At night, he dreamed about making shoes, but he dared not ask until he was tasked. For now, it was enough to just watch the master. In time, a few years went by, and the boy grew to a young man, never leaving the cobbler's side. One day, the little bell on the door rang louder than usual, and an enormous gentleman with an ornate hooded cloak approached the old cobbler. And when he pushed his hood back, the old cobbler and the boy gasped as they realized it was the king. The king's face was stern, but when he began to speak, he revealed just a glint of respect 
for the reputation of the old cobbler whose treadborn creations were known throughout the land. The king asked the cobbler to make him a special pair of boots, but he did not want them to be like anyone else's boots. And most importantly, he wanted them done in three days' time. The king's dark eyes flashed as he twisted his thick mustache and charged the cobbler that if the boots pleased him, the cobbler would be richly rewarded and would never have a care again in this world. The cobbler only nodded with a gentle smile and said, I will do my best, my highness, your highness. He then proceeded with measure, his measuring routine in order to get the king's boots just right. The young man was amazed. He was sure that he would not miss one day of the cobbler making these boots. The cobbler sat down that very afternoon and began making little sketches, sitting back and rubbing his chin. He finally set to work on his cutting, cutting on leather and sewing the pieces together and fashioning them, forming them. It was tougher than his normal work. And for the first time, the young man saw the old cobbler straining, but never a sign of frustration. The young man fell asleep on the small cot that was set out for him on the days he grew tired. He awoke, and he realized that he had slept through the night, and the old cobbler was still in his seat with his head resting on the table. The young man approached the cobbler but was frightened to see that he was no longer in this world. He had passed during the night. He was dismayed to see that the boots were not even close to being done. He quickly ran out and he grabbed the arm of the first passerby who came and then alerted the authorities. The old cobbler was gone. The young man was grief-stricken by his master's absence. He went into the cobbler's shop and sat for hours like a puppy who refused to leave his master's chair. A closed sign was placed on the door, but the young man refused and never left and was forgotten. On the third day, the king clandestinely approached the shop once again and was dismayed when he saw the sign on the door. But not to be detained, he opened the door anyway. And sitting in the old cobbler's chair was the young man holding a pair of beautiful black boots, buckled and polished. The king was confused, but he approached the young man who quietly handed the boots to the king. The king examined them and with a flushed face remarked that he had never seen their equal. He asked, where's the cobbler? So they may reward him. The young man answered, he has left this earth, your highness, and left to me his unfinished work, which I was glad to do. The king was clearly surprised, but made good on his word and rewarded the young man with not only the cobbler's shop, but enough riches for him to no longer have a care in this world, but for the joy of making the master's shoes for all who would come. Let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the great cobbler, the master, the perfecter of our faith. The truth is, he's left part of his work unfinished. Did you know that? He said, look, I died. I've won all this. Now you go and win for me the reward of my suffering. Go and tell. Go and create. Use your gifts. Use your talent. Use all that I've put inside you for my glory to flow through your life until you have no breath left in you. That's the call. 
That's the journey. And it will be filled with joy and reward and blessing and grace for all those who will embrace it. That's our journey, folks. Let's stand this evening.